Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Janet Fletcher in Napa Valley, California, and I'm the author of Wine Country Table. California, a western U.S. state, stretches from the Mexican border along the Pacific for nearly 900 miles. Its terrain includes cliff-lined beaches, the Redwood Forest, Sierra Nevada Mountains, Central Valley farmland, and the Mojave Desert. Talk a bit about the range of California's bounty. You know, Susie, I think a lot of people think of California as just warm and sunny all the time. And we have a lot of that. We have a lot of sunshine, but we have a an incredible range of uh, climates, climate zones and microclimates within those zones. We have a lot of cool, foggy coastal areas that are great for certain wine grapes and great for for certain crops like lettuces and artichokes and Brussels sprouts and broccoli. So there's, uh, I feel like there's a sweet spot for every crop you might want to go uh, grow somewhere in this state. This book includes 23 stunning farms and wineries. How did these 23 make the cut? We were looking to showcase a variety of crops and a variety of growing regions. And all of the farms and all of the wineries that are showcased in the book are leaders in sustainability. They are, um, some are organic, not necessarily, uh, but all of them are really um, known as models of sustainable farming or grape growing. And that's uh, really what we wanted to showcase, that California is uh, not only the U.S.'s number one agricultural state, but we're really global leaders in sustainable practices, which is, you know, not just, uh, of course, sustainability has a lot to do with how um, how you treat the land, you know, whether you do or don't use uh, herbicides and pesticides, are you a good environmentalist? But also, are you uh, conscientious about saving other resources like water, uh, like energy? Are you good to your employees? Are you um, a good member of your community? It's a more holistic approach to, uh, to farming than, say, uh, biodynamics or organics. In addition to the stories, this book includes 50 recipes that cover all the bases from breakfast to dessert. Talk a little bit about that. Well, breakfast, I, one of my favorite recipes in the book is, a, I call it Golden State Granola. California is known as the Golden State. And the Golden State Granola really showcases uh, uh, one of our major crops, which is almonds, with a lot of toasted almonds in it and uh, toasted uh, oatmeal and coconut and raisins and dates. And it's just a kind of a compilation of a lot of the things that we're known for here in California it makes a great topping for yogurt or a great breakfast with, uh, you know, with some milk on top. So really love that uh, recipe for breakfast. And smoothies. I'm a big smoothie fan, and uh, I love taking dates or prunes. Uh, prunes, you know, are just dried plums, and putting them in a blender with uh, a frozen banana and some buttermilk, uh, which is very low in fat and making a delicious breakfast smoothie. Now, would a vintner 60 years ago recognize what's going on today in California? Interesting question. I think actually a lot of the old timers or people from a generation or two ago would be really surprised by how 
uh, grapes are being grown in California today. One, one thing that comes to mind is that if you drive around the vineyards, vineyards almost anywhere in this state, uh, I'm talking about vineyards for, for, for uh, wine, uh, not just table grapes, um, you're going to see what looks like sometimes kind of messy vineyards. They look like they have weeds in them. Uh, in the old days, vineyards were always really carefully um, tilled, and so they, the ground was very bare under the grapes, and today it's not. Uh, people, And that's because people are growing cover crops to uh, attract beneficial insects and in some cases to add nutrients to the soil uh, or maybe um, prevent erosion. There are all four, sorts of reasons to plant cover crops, um, but almost every vineyard is doing it today. So vineyards can look kind of messy because they have these grasses growing up uh, under the vines or between the rows. You mentioned table grapes. What's the difference between a table grape and a grape for wine? Well, some table grapes are uh, used in winemaking. Uh, one of the biggest ones is Thompson Seedless. That's probably our main table grape. And it's used It's used in wine. I wouldn't say it's used in high-quality wines too much, but it is a grape that you can... Um, you can vinify. You can vinify any grape. Uh, you can add yeast and ferment it and make wine. But uh, over the centuries, winemakers have learned that certain grapes produce a better, a better flavored wine. Gr- wine grapes tend to have thicker skins. They're not ones you would necessarily enjoy as a table grape because they have thick skins and they have seeds. And today, of course, everybody for the table they want to they want a seedless uh, grape with a thin skin. So there is that difference of um, eating quality, but and also wine grapes, uh, to make wine, they let them get really, really sweet. They get up to about, um, oh, 24, almost a quarter sugar before they pick them, and I think to make wine, and I think very few table grapes are picked at that high a sugar. Immigration is a hot-button issue right now. Um, how essential is the immigrant population with helping California farming production? Essential is the word. Uh, our, our immigrant communities are essential. We couldn't, uh, we could not have agriculture in California without the people who work year-round in our vineyards and on our farms. They prune. They, uh, you know, they cultivate. They uh, harvest. They are the labor force and. Um, most, I would say, native-born Americans are not willing to do that work. It's, um, it's, you know, it's hard physical work. And so uh, the immigrant communities in, in California, agriculture is primarily Hispanic uh, people, mostly from Mexico, who do a lot of the work in our, our farms. And um, they are just essential. And I think one aspect of the sustainability programs that most wineries and um, you know farms are signing on onto is the understanding that uh, working conditions you know have to be um, have to be proper. They have to be beyond proper. I mean, our California regulates all of this. Every, uh, farmers and vintners have to follow you know, certain regulations about employee welfare. But uh, people who are advocates of sustainability can sort of go beyond that. Um, I'm thinking of one great, one vintner in California, and I'm sure he's not the only one, but he's quite a well-known uh, character, Larry Turley of Turley Wine Cellars, who has pledged to put any one of his empl- the kids of any one of his employees through a state college. He'll pay their state college tuition. 
and he has done that for four, and he told me that there are 28 more people currently, young people who would qualify, and he stands ready to put them all through state college. So there's just this understanding that employees are key assets, and you have to <laughs> you have to treat them you have to treat them well. It's just the right thing to do. One story that caught my eye was of the Resendez brothers in the town of Rainbow, an hour north of San Diego. Can you talk a bit about their story? Yeah, isn't that a great town name, Rainbow? Yeah, and it really doesn't look uh, like paradise as you're driving up to it. It's a desert landscape. It's very dry and rocky and uh, very steep uh, hills that are um, just bare. It looks like nothing would grow there. But to go to Resendez Brothers, which is near, in northern San Diego County, uh, not far from the, you know, the town of San Diego, you uh, pull off the road and you drive up into the mountains, and there is this farm there that's a cut flower farm. And we included, included cut flowers in the book, even though they're not edible, because there's a big sustainability movement in California cut flowers. To You know, you can grow apples sustainably and berries sustainably, but you can also grow cut flowers sustainably if you choose to. And the Resendez brothers do that. It's an operation that was um, started by a man named Mel Resendez who came to California as an immigrant, uh, as a teenager with nothing. And he started working on a cut flower farm just to, as a you know low man on the totem pole. And he learned the business, and he became you know, very accomplished at growing these flowers in the desert. They are a type of flower called protea, uh, which doesn't take a lot of water. It likes that sun and those difficult conditions. And he started his own business and uh, growing proteas for the florist trade. And he now has a large business, uh, lots of employees, and he ships these flowers all over the world. They are gorgeous, and they grow out of this landscape that just looks like nothing would come out of it. So he's he's turning this marginal land into very productive land that's supporting a, a very good business. He started out at 17, making $20 a day, and now he gets $12 a flower. This is a real great American story. It really is. I'd forgotten those numbers, but yeah, this, some of these flowers are quite... Uh, quite valuable. And when I was down there visiting him, he took me, at the, near the end of our visit, he took me into his packing shed and he uh, started kind of ordering his employees around in Spanish and they were bringing him all sorts of, all these you know, cut flowers uh, to his table in the packing shed. And he starts making this bouquet. And I thought he was you know, making it for some you know, client that it was going to go off to some bride somewhere <laughs> for some society wedding. It was this gorgeous bouquet and it was getting bigger and bigger. And finally, it was two feet across, and he handed it to me. And I said, Mel, I can't take that. I'm, I'm getting on an airplane in two hours. What am I going to do? And he said, you're going to take it on the plane. So, in fact, I uh, marched onto the plane with that bouquet. They let me on with it, and I fortunately had an empty seat next to me. And so I just put that giant bouquet of proteas in the seat next to me, and I put a seat belt around it, and <laughs> off we went. That's so funny. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, very generous man growing a beautiful, um, you know, building a, a great business on this beautiful crop that he found a niche for. You wrote in the book Luther Burbank, the legendary plant breeder called Sonoma County, the chosen spot of all this earth as far as nature is concerned. Talk a little bit about his groundbreaking work. Well, Luther Burbank was, I don't know where he was from, 
I'm not sure if he was a Californian, but he did most of his work uh, around the town of Santa Rosa in Sonoma County. And he was a famous plant breeder of the early, I'm going to say the early 20th century. And a lot of the uh, fruits primarily are what he worked with. And a lot of the fruits that he created through hybridizing are are still among our favorites today, uh, one called the Santa Rosa Plum. Santa Rosa Plum is one of our um, table plums that we, you can find it all over uh, markets. The Santa Rosa Plum is a great eating plum that he developed. But the one that uh, we dry is called the um, Improved French uh, Plum, and that's a Luther Burbank uh, hybrid, and that's what's grown in all of our prune orchards, which are it, it's just an absolutely delicious piece of fruit, both fresh and dried. In Sonoma County is the Francis Ford Coppola Winery. How did a world-famous film director get into the wine business? Well, Francis Coppola is a wine lover, and he and his wife bought a beautiful uh, heritage estate in Napa Valley, uh, I'm going to say maybe 30 years ago, and really transformed that. And then he, uh, I think he just enjoyed the wine business. There's a bit of a performance quality <laughs> to the wine business as well on, in some levels. And I think uh, he just enjoyed being in agriculture. I know his wife, uh, Eleanor Coppola, is an amazing gardener. And they uh, went on to buy this property in Sonoma uh, County, another important um, heritage estate, and that's where they have uh, Francis Ford Coppola cellars now. It's a wonderful place to visit, and the thing that he did that is was um, pretty revolutionary for the wine industry is that he created this winery that is very welcoming to children. I think wineries have sort of shied away from that for fear of you know, crossing a line, offending people, that they're marketing to children. But Coppola just embraced kids, and he created a swimming pool. He used to, he noticed that his Napa winery, kids were always wanting to go into the fountain, and parents were always admonishing the kids not to go into the fountain. So he said at his Sonoma winery, he was going to have this giant swimming pool that kids could enjoy. So there's all sorts of fun, family-oriented things to do at his winery in Sonoma, including a beautiful garden, great restaurant, and this enormous oversized swimming pool. Among the fog, what is harvested on the North Coast? The foggy areas uh, on the North Coast are really best for certain wine grapes, like cool climates, like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. Um, in the Anderson Valley, which is one of our coolest growing regions along the coast, wineries are growing varieties that uh, are more typically associated with Alsace, one of France's coolest growing regions. That would be varieties like Riesling and Gewürztraminer. So that's one of the few places in California where those cool climate grapes are still grown in the Anderson Valley. But as far as produce, those cool climate areas are really great for, oh, those beautiful baby lettuces that you see in in, in fancy restaurants. There's one grower along the coast in a little, you can't even call it a town, it's just a little speck of a bird called Bolinus. He grows an amazing array of uh, lettuces, very tender lettuces, and he is really the farmer who deserves a lot of the credit for introducing the little gem variety. He started growing it and taking it to the a farmer's market in San Francisco. It's a, a romaine type, but very small, very crisp. People fell in love with the little gem a lettuce that this farmer was growing, and it's now, I mean, it's the trendiest lettuce. It's on every menu. People have little gem Caesar salads and little gem uh, this and that. Uh, so, but he really introduced the little gem, I would say, to California agriculture. 
You wrote, the early Sierra Foothills grape growers got it right. Zinfandel belongs here. Why is that? Well, Zinfandel likes mountain vineyards. It does really well on these higher elevation uh, vineyards. It likes some heat. And um, it, it doesn't really get a lot of flavor until it gets very ripe. Uh, riper than you would pick, say, a Pinot Noir or a Chardonnay. And it also, um, you know, needs good drainage like most grapes, So that's, but it really likes the drainage that you get on a, on a steep hillside. You know, it got established in some of these older California vineyards, like 19th century vineyards in the Sierra foothills when, you know, shortly after the gold rush. Uh, that's where the gold rush happened. And um, of course, a lot of these people who came uh, to California to mine gold, they like to drink. <laughs> And they uh, wanted their wines, and so people started planting vineyards there. So some of our oldest vineyards are in that sort of gold rush area in the Sierra foothills. And today's winemakers are just overjoyed when they can get a parcel that has some of these older vines on it. Some of them might be 80, you know, 70, 80, 90-year-old vines. And they are very prized because they have shown that they can survive in that that climate. You know, it's like survival of the fittest. They're the vines that have done well there, have survived for all these years, and have very deep roots and make beautiful wines. Uh, so that's where these old vines, infidels that you uh, read about, a lot of them are coming out of that Sierra Foothills area. Speaking of old vines, the Lucas Winery in Lodi is owned by David and his wife, Heather Pyle Lucas. Um, So David purchased the land in 1976 after doing a stint in the Peace Corps and U.S. Foreign Service with expertise in Asian rice cultivation. And he just wanted to own land and grow something. They have old vine, world-class Zinfandel, and David has named every grapevine I love that. Uh, I went into one into their uh, barrel area, and there was this vine mounted on the wall, uh, you know, dead vine, and no leaves on it. It's just those gnarly arms, and it was mounted on this wooden uh, on this wooden board. It look it makes almost like a cross shape. So it looks like this religious um, icon on this uh, barrel wall. I found it funny because I kept reading it over and over and I was thinking, a tractor ran over Cindy? And then I was like, oh, Cindy's a grapevine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The Luke, so David funny. Lucas gives all his grapevines names, all his old ones. Um, they have names because he just treasures them. He sees them as, you know, almost members of the family and they are prized and you can injure one if you have a you know, a, a tractor or a, a weed-eating device that goes, there are these kind of plows. And when they sense the vine trunk, they go around it. They retract and they go around it. But uh, if you're not handling it properly, you can do some damage to a vine. And that's what happened to poor Cindy. She got nicked and she didn't survive. So he mounted her on a wall like a shrine. And it's quite, it's a beautiful, looks like a work of art, very gnarly arms, um, that kind of stretch across the wall of their uh, barrel room. You can't miss Cindy. <laughs> so on your personal blog, you wrote, I live, cook, garden, and write on a quiet street in Napa Valley. My house is not large, but my kitchen is, and my sunny garden is bigger yet. That sounds dreamy. Describe how the two years you spent as a cook at Chez Panisse shaped your taste. I worked uh, at Chez Panisse 
it was one of my first jobs out of cooking school, and it I was very impressionable, and it made a big impression, and it has really stayed with me in the years since. That was uh, more than 30 years ago, but working with Alice Waters is just, well, it was a, a dream for a young cook, and she has such a strong um, point of view, a strong aesthetic, and it really made a, a mark on me. A lot of it had to do with supporting small farms, supporting local farms, being an absolute um, obsessive about quality and uh, working with only the best. Uh, you can't make good food without great ingredients. And, uh, and, and also, I think as a cook, I learned to keep it simple, that if you buy great ingredients, you just don't want to do too much to them because uh, you don't want to screw them up. Alice really has shaped my approach to cooking and Certainly that experience of being at Chez Panisse and seeing all that gorgeous produce that would come in the door made me want to to garden. So I've been an avid gardener ever since that time. Your husband has said, over the years, Janet's cooking and recipe development has affected how I view wine. Talk a bit about that. Well, Doug makes wines that are, I hate to use this word because it sounds kind of trite, but they're very food-friendly they are not hugely tannic. They are fruit forward and the alcohol is restrained and the tannin is gentle. Doug recently retired, but he's most, spent most of his career in the Stag's Leap District of Napa Valley, which is renowned for that style of wine anyway. But the, the wines are primarily Cabernet. That's what the area is known for. And Cabernets, depending on how you make them and where you grow them, can be very tannic and hard to like when they're young. Doug's are more feminine, more soft, more uh, not soft in terms of low acid. They have good acidity and uh, approachable tannins. So they are very good food wines. We eat a lot of beans and grains and fruits and vegetables in this household and not a lot of meat. And the wines, his red wines are very complimentary with that kind of produce first way of eating. Now to my segment called My Last Meal. What would you have for your last supper? I, you know, every time I have an avocado, a beautiful ripe avocado, and spread it on homemade bread or whole grain bread from a good bakery, and I put some coarse salt on top and a little squeeze of lemon or lime, I think this is this is what I want for my last meal. It just doesn't get any better than a great California avocado, buttery, uh, nutty, uh, and I, you know, I'm quite happy with something like that. It's in fact I have that for lunch a lot. Just a piece of avocado toast. So it makes me laugh that avocado toast has become so trendy because I've been eating that for a long time, even at Chez Panisse when I was a cook there. And I had like, you know, all this amazing food around me for my little break time lunch. I would just grab a piece of bread and an avocado. (laughs) I would be very happy with that for lunch. You were ahead of your time. In terms of avocado toast, yes, <laughs> I've been enjoying it for a long time and and uh, and will continue. Even when other people move on to other things, I'll be eating my avocado toast. Till it comes back around. Right. <laughs> These things are cyclical. No, people will never give up on avocados. Uh, it's one of people's favorite fruits. They're so luscious. And I uh, did get to visit an avocado grower in the book and profiled him. He's down in uh, the Carpinteria area near Santa Barbara. Family farm. He farms with his wife and... Uh, has two adorable children and or three, and they uh, grow citrus and avocados, and they are very sustainable about it. In fact, he gets a lot of the mulch that he puts around his trees from a local Starbucks factory where they make frappuccino. So there are all these coffee grounds that he can get for next to nothing, and he puts those around the base of his tree to provide nutrients and keep the weeds down. 
and it, other people do not do that. It's pretty uh, progressive, a pretty new thing to think about mulching your uh, groves. Where can we find you on the web, social media, and your cheese class? Well, I hope people will find me on uh, JanetFletcher.com. That's my website where I list all my classes. I teach a lot of cheese appreciation classes and cooking classes. I have a blog called Planet Cheese, and people can sign up on my website, JanetFletcher.com. It's a once-a-week read, something new that I've learned about cheese and want to share. So cheese is a, a great passion, along with my love of writing about farms and farming and great produce. I do love the world of cheese, and I hope people will join me uh, with Planet Cheese. Instagram at JanetFletcherNV for Napa Valley, and Twitter, JanetFletcherNV. Awesome. Thanks, Janet, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. It's been my pleasure, Susie. Thank you for having me. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.